Hello, um, welcome to this LSE online event. Um, my name is uh, Nick Stern. Um, I'm a professor at uh, the Economics and Government Department. I'm the IG Patel Professor. And I'm also chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the LSE. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my friend, indeed my very distinguished friend, Patricia Espinosa to LSE today. Um, I've known uh, Patricia ever since the um, Cancun um, COP back in uh, 2010. And uh, Patricia and uh, President Felipe Calderon were the two leaders of that COP. And as we know from the histories of the COP, there have been two very successful COPs. There have been other fairly successful COPs, but there have been two very successful COPs, 2010 in Cancun and 2015 in Paris. And Patricia, I've been able to keep in touch with Patricia ever since that. Patricia then was the um, Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, a very big, uh, heavy job, if you like, but still she made the time, it was a big priority for Mexico to lead that Cancun um, COP. She has more than 30 years of experience at the highest levels of international relations, of course, on climate change, but also global governance, sustainable development, uh, gender issues and protection of uh, human rights. So it's an enormous pleasure for us, uh, Patricia, to welcome you to the London School of Economics. And we're delighted to have you with us. Um, you'll be speaking on our slim window of opportunity, what the climate agenda must achieve in 2021. And after you've spoken, uh, we'll have time for some questions, one or two from me, but basically mostly from the audience. So thank you all. Thank you all very much indeed. And we look forward to your talk, Patricia. Thank you for spending the time with us. Over to you. You. Thank you very much, uh, Nick. Thank you for those very generous words of introduction. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I really feel privileged to be able to participate in this series of public lectures at the London School of Economics. And I want to uh, thank uh, Lord uh, Stern, uh, not only for his words of introduction, but for chairing this meeting and uh, for his long-standing and tireless efforts to address climate change. Uh, I thank also the Geography and Environment Department for hosting this meeting and to all of you for attending and allowing me to share some my personal outlook on the issue of climate change at this very complex and crucial time. Today, we will examine the roots of the Paris Agreement, our present situation in this difficult year, why COP26 in November is vital with respect to global efforts to address climate change and how all of this relates to you. So five years ago, the nations of the world adopted the Paris Agreement, which is a covenant of hope with the people of the world. It was a remarkable achievement, a milestone for multilateralism, a declaration that humanity could and would stand united and address the most significant threat 
to its collective future. The excitement was palpable. After all, history shows that the world succeeds when the world works together. It's how nations working together cured polio, eradicated smallpox, began to repair the ozone layer, and much, much more. But history, of course, never travels a straight line. And much has changed in the five years since the Paris Agreement was adopted. Multilateralism, the collective way, the collective way of approaching solutions to global problems has been under attack when we need it most. A global pandemic has dramatically changed the way we live and work. And in five years, the climate emergency has worsened as well. Global warming continues unabated, threatening lives and livelihoods around the world. The evidence keeps mounting. 2020 was among the hottest three years on record. The past decade was the hottest in human history. Ocean heat is at record levels. This year in the Arctic, temperatures were more than three degrees above average and over five degrees higher in Northern Siberia. Randomly spin a globe and put your finger down and the chances are good that your finger landed somewhere that is or will be dealing with a weather emergency, an emergency accompanied by loss of life, property, and hope. If you put your finger down in a vulnerable or underdeveloped region, those chances are likely tripled. Based on the best available science, and we are the UN body responsible for dealing with the best climate science available. There is no reason to believe that this will suddenly reverse itself independently. That's not how science or reality works. Instead, the evidence shows that without effective climate action, these extreme weather incidents will grow in frequency and devastating power and devastating costs in the coming years. And this is something that we are already experiencing. Geographical isolation or isolationism as a national policy is not a solution. COVID-19 showed just how much respect the virus had for our national borders and climate change respects them even less. Consequently, climate change may impact some nations directly, but all nations will feel its reverberations. And I would say that in many places that uh, thought they would be completely free from effects of climate change, they are already feeling it. So the reverberations of these uh, consequences of climate change may come via the global economy, international trade, or the development of more viruses and diseases due to the deep ties climate change has with nature and land. We simply don't know. But one thing is clear. No longer can we be as islands unto ourselves. 
Nobody understands this more than people who actually live on islands. Small island states, some of the most vulnerable places to live in the world due to the rising sea levels, are some of our most ambitious advocates of stronger climate action. Some people will argue that perhaps we shouldn't worry so much. After all, emissions are down due to the pandemic. Without transformative change, however, those numbers will certainly be temporary. Let us not forget that climate change results from the cumulative buildup of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere over time, not emissions in any particular year. Think of it like a nation's finances. A balanced budget in one fiscal year doesn't ease the overall debt acquired over time. The principal remains, interest continues to grow, and financial flexibility is restricted as more and more funds go to servicing the debt and avoiding default. Right now, we are defaulting on our climate change budget. If we don't reduce emissions now and over the long term, while also working to build resilience to climate impacts already with us, the consequences will likely be profound, widespread and devastating. Dear friends, that's what happened in five years since the Paris Agreement was adopted. But let us be clear, adoption is not implementation. Adoption is intent, implementation is action. That's why the adoption of the Paris Agreement to borrow and paraphrase a famous line, was not the end. It was not even the beginning of the end. It was only the end of the beginning. While we have seen signs of momentum, nations simply haven't done enough to fulfill its potential, nor have they sufficiently raised climate ambition under it. Never was this clearer than as we came out of COP25 in Madrid in 2019. While member states achieved some progress, they left much work on the table. Then COVID-19 hit, setting everything back, magnifying why it's so important to make progress when you can. And that's where things currently stand. So how do we move forward from here? Currently, the twin crises of COVID-19 and climate change seem like immovable mountains, challenges almost impossible to overcome. I will return to the broader theme of beating impossible odds in just a few moments, but on a practical and political level. One of the lessons arising from 2020 is that the only way forward is to build on the point of convergence that we know exists between COVID-19 and climate change. While there are no upsides or silver linings in devastation, that point of convergence opens a slim window of global opportunity to build a better future. Namely, recovery from COVID-19 offers nations a chance to reorient policies and plans that will help build resilience 
as well as building cities and communities that are clean, green, healthy, and sustainable. Some call it building back better, and I understand why, but I prefer to call it building forward, building forward in ways that are greener, cleaner, and healthier for all people. I'm talking about building forward towards a future that protects the planet, respects the land, recognizes the importance of biodiversity and our intricate relationship with it. I'm talking about positive transformation at a global scale, a great human project. Never has a generation had the opportunity to change so much in so little time, but it will require an incredible amount of work to accomplish. We must move quickly and we must get it right. This is a year we can get it right. The year that we achieve a pivotal transformational change in global climate policy and action. And that's why 2021 is the most important year for climate change since the adoption of the Paris Agreement. It's time for nations to walk their talk. It's time for societies stand by their decisions. It's time for intentions to turn into actions. The forthcoming climate negotiations in Glasgow by the end of the year will be the greatest test yet for the Paris Agreement. And there is only one admissible outcome. COP26 must be a success. A success for the planet, for those who share it, and for those who inherit it. And so what does success mean? Trying to summarize it, let me present you with four concepts, four ideas. To me, first, it means promises made must be promises kept. And that means that the pledges that parties made before 2020, and here I'm talking about the Cancun pledges that outlined broad climate action by 2020, must be honored and completed. And this is especially true of the pledge by developed nations to mobilize 100 billion annually to developing nations by 2020. The obligation to support the efforts of developing countries cannot and will not be ignored. And it is in the self-interest of developed countries to fulfill these commitments. Second, it's time to wrap it up and implement. It's time to wrap up outstanding items and negotiations and implement fully the Paris Agreement. We have been five years negotiating. The clock has run out. Unleashing its full potential will not only address climate change, but help the world build forward from COVID-19. So yes, for those more familiar with the subject, I'm talking about getting an agreement on Article 6, the one about emissions markets and other cooperative approaches. Implementation must be cross-cutting. Gone are the days of climate change being solely in the purview of the Environment Ministry or perhaps natural resources. 
Just as climate change knows no jurisdictions with respect to its impacts, efforts to address it must permeate all government departments and inform all policy making at all levels. And we need implementation at all levels, international, domestic, and local. Third, it's time to lower emissions and raise ambitions. The best time to raise a climate ambition was yesterday, and the next best time is today. Never has global expectation and political commitment been so far apart. It's time to close that gap. And when we're talking about raising ambition, we are not just talking about mitigation, but also increasing ambition in adaptation and resilience and support to developing countries. Fourth, we must leave no voice or solution behind. We must re-engage with observers and non-party stakeholders in a unity of purpose. Our brand of inclusive multilateralism is the only way forward. In fact, it is our creed. Everyone has a role to play and everyone must be involved. That's one of the reasons I'm here today. Academia, you are crucial to these solutions as well. This list, of course, does not mean that other issues are not important or that they will not get attention this year. It simply means we must be clear about what we must achieve and how to get there. To the parties, I say this, it's time to negotiate like you never have before. Billions of eyes are looking to you. So the good news is that momentum is in our favor. We are encouraged by recent announcements by Korea, Japan, and China with regard to their long-term plans. China's President Xi Jinping announced that China aims to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. Prime Minister Suga of Japan has committed to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. President Moon announced South Korea will commit to achieving carbon neutrality by 2050 as well. In the Philippines, the Energy Secretary announced that the country will declare a moratorium on new greenfield coal-fired power plants. And the European Union launched its Green Deal two months ago. Following that, through what are called the Nationally Determined Contributions, NDCs, the national plans, the European Union pledged a 55% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared with 1990 levels. It also committed to carbon neutrality by 2050. And the UK, our host, also recently announced a new emission target setting itself on the path to net zero by 2050. And the United States has also formally announced it will rejoin the Paris. Actually, the United States has already uh, deposited its, um, its, uh, its uh, instrument for rejoining the Paris Agreement and has also committed to 
new NDCs. We are really looking forward to seeing ambitious targets in these new NDCs by NDC by the US. And these are only a few examples. We continue to encourage all nations to get on board, to publicly announce their intentions and to commit to the transformation that we must achieve. We saw many commitments of this kind at December's Climate Ambition Summit, where countries set out new and ambitious commitments under the three pillars of the Paris Agreement, mitigation, adaptation, and finance. This impressive event set the stage for COP26, engaging the business and investor sector. And speaking of the private sector, we also see signs for optimism and transformation there, perhaps best reflected in our Race to Zero campaign, which mobilizes governments, businesses, and civil society to achieve carbon neutrality as quickly as possible. It's a coalition of more than 450 cities, 20 regions, close to 1,400 businesses, and over 570 universities who have joined 120 countries in the largest ever alliance committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050 at the latest. Collectively, these actors now cover nearly 25% of global CO2 emissions and more than 50% of global gross domestic product. Renewable energy continues to grow throughout the world. The International Energy Agency recently released a report showing that despite the pandemic, renewable markets, especially electricity generating technologies, are proving resilient. Green energy is here to stay. Electric cars, likewise, are on the rise. Most of the biggest auto companies have bet their future on it. And there is no reason to doubt that this change too is here to stay. So ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, today I have discussed where we have been, where we are, where we are going and why we have momentum on our side. But I want to end with something a bit more personal. There is no doubt we are all in a tough spot right now. Things are very, very difficult on many fronts. Sometimes we wake up and our challenges seem insurmountable. If you look at these things all at once, they do look impossible to overcome. I think all, of all the losses people have suffered this year and last year, and how they can possibly look at that in one big picture. You don't just snap your fingers and you come out of it. You do what you can and get through the day. You get through the week, you get through the year, you do a little bit every day and you eventually find the other side. You have to seize the smallest slivers of light, of positivity when you can, and grasp for everything you can, you can to pull yourself forward. This isn't feel-good optimism. It's not a motivational, motivational slogan. 
It's practical advice that has always worked. It worked for me. I know something about beating impossible odds. As I suffered stage three breast cancer recently in 2019. You look at something like cancer head on and it's the immovable mountain. But by making incremental progress each day, I continue to get through it. So many people around the world have gone through something similar. And yes, I recognize that we are, at least I am, one of the lucky ones. Not all are so fortunate. But for those who have been through similar challenges, impossible is simply not a word that resonates with them or me either. We must have this same attitude in these difficult times or when we look at these so-called impossible odds. Faced with the twin crisis of COVID-19 and climate change, two of the biggest challenges humanity has ever faced, impossible is not the answer the world wants right now. What they want is, here is how. So, ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, today I have discussed some of the how. I look, look forward to you becoming part of that discussion. Again, academia, all of you have a key role to play. So do you in your personal lives. To that end, I invite you to reject the concept of impossible odds of unbeatable challenges. Instead, I encourage you to consider that we are, despite all appearances, in an enviable position. Never before has humanity had the power to con consciously and collectively determine its future trajectory and ultimate destiny. For millennia, we were scattered groups fighting for short-term stakes in a geographically disconnected world. That's not who we are anymore. Today, we have the potential to combine our money, our technology, our skills, our knowledge, our enthusiasm, our ingenuity, and yes, the feeling inside all of us that cherishes life on this planet to create change at a global level. Our capacity for positive change is infinite. That's who we are. It's time we live up to our potential. I urge you, all of you, to seize this moment. I urge you to reach out, not just across borders, but across generations, cultures, political lines, and juris jurisdictions to do it. And I urge you to join this great human project, this great human moment of transformation to build forward to build a better future, a green future, a clean future, and a future that is healthy, safe, resilient, sustainable, and prosperous for all people. And I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Patricia. We're, we're very fortunate to have you as the Executive Secretary of the UNFCCC. Um, Your talk was both inspiring, but also intensely uh, practical. 
and your call to all of us um, is something which I hope that we're hearing at the LSE. Um, we established the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment a dozen years ago. We are the co-chairs with Tsinghua University in China, the LSE and Tsinghua together, of the Global Alliance of Universities on, uh, on Climate. And we have, uh, in this last year or so, implemented a sustainability program where these issues with climate at the center, of course, are now uh, part of our research strategy, our uh, education, teaching uh, strategy, public engagement, the campus itself uh, we're taking to uh, net zero uh, very soon. So I hope we're, uh, we're, we're doing a bit, a bit, but you're right to challenge us because there's so much more we all can do. And I'm sure that your talk just now will inspire us still further to go forward at the LSE. And one of the great things um, about being at a university is that uh, you, you get older, but uh, the students stay the same age. And uh, they're keeping the pressure on us but not just through pressure, but also as participants, what we're doing, we're doing together. Faculty, students, those who work in other ways, our alumni, of course, as well. So it's a collaborative exercise here. So thank you so much for that. We've got our questions coming in, but I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions myself, if, uh, if I may. And that is the challenge of negotiating um, in large measure, not entirely, of course, but in large measure, virtually. Um, negotiating sometimes the wrong word, the challenge of bringing everybody together and moving forward. Um, negotiation sometimes sounds like arms wrestling, arm wrestling, but you've made it very clear that this is very far from a zero-sum game. So we, rather than negotiating, perhaps we should say uh, working together to uh, bridge that gap between um, the ambition of 1.5 or well below two degrees and uh, actual uh, action. Doing that virtually um, must pose its problems. And I wondered if you could uh, indicate some of those problems and how, how you're dealing with them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. And uh, thank you also for raising this, uh, this point, which is indeed a, a, a very important challenge. And I, th I would... I would say that it's an issue that um, uh, will remain with us, that uh, we are seeing uh, today a moment of transformation of diplomacy altogether. By, by definition and traditionally, uh, diplomacy and, and negotiations uh, have always uh, implied this, the personal contact. So uh, I'm not saying that we need to, to substitute the personal contact. But um, uh, uh, the truth is that uh, before we didn't have the means to have this personal contact uh, uh, virtually uh, over thousands of, of kilometers uh, away uh, of distance, you know, long distance. So we, we needed, it was just uh, not possible to do any kind of, of dialogue without coming all together. And uh, yes, as I have mentioned uh, in, in my words before, of course, this virtual reality puts a lot of stress uh, on us. 
we human beings, we like to be together. We are social beings. We like to, um, to, 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 to feel each other. Um, and, and the personal contact, uh, cannot be, um, a, achieved fully through virtual means. However, uh, I think that what uh, we have learned, uh, from last year is that we can do much more than we originally thought. That we can make progress. That we can work together, uh, through these virtual means. Now, this is, of course, not yet included in any kind of rules of procedure of any multilateral negotiations. We are facing a moment where reality has gone ahead, you know, and our usual frameworks have stayed the same. Eventually, I think we will need to adapt them. Um, so what we did last year was um, to uh, make use of the only a formal body that we could bring together, which was uh, the Bureau uh, of the conference to take decisions and give us some guidance on how to, um, how to bring the process forward. So uh, the Bureau uh, decided that uh, we should try to uh, stick to the mandates and the deadlines that were originally established. That meant the work that needed to be completed by the end of the of 2020 should be completed through virtual uh, meetings, and um, and that uh, we should try to avoid delays. Um, now, uh, that implied basically that we were able to do a lot of the usual work on uh, reviews, on um, uh, some uh, constituted bodies in our process. The point is that, that we were not able to do much progress on negotiations, on the points that are in our agenda and require some, um, uh, you know, some understanding, some common understanding so that we can, the conference can take decisions and move the process forward. And I mentioned one example, which is uh, Article 6, the carbon markets uh, issue, but there are uh, many others. There are decisions to be made regarding transparency, regarding adaptation, the, the, the global adaptation goal. There are many decisions that are important to make uh, and, and that has been postponed. So I think that uh, this year we need to find uh, a way of doing this informal consultations, these interactions on all those issues, so that by the time we get to Glasgow, we have a good package of results that can be delivered. The formal decisions will be taken at the conference. And of course, I would say I'm, I'm still very much hopeful that by November, we will be able to have uh, the conference with in-person participation of all parties. So the formal decisions would be done in Glasgow. But if we think, if we do not make progress throughout the year, we won't be able to uh, finish with the many issues that need to be, uh, need to be addressed. So um, we need to get um, a way, a common understanding on uh, virtual, consultations, 
that can allow us to put together a series of inputs that can be formalized in Glasgow. That means that we need to uh, take account of the challenges regarding time zones. Um, uh, you know, we cannot ask uh, always the same uh, colleagues uh, to be working in the middle of the night. So we will have to be very practical and use different time uh, slots so that everybody gets the same amount, uh, hopefully, of uh, you know, inconvenient times uh, for work. Um, I think we need to also make sure that we will support those colleagues who have difficulties in, in having a good uh, connectivity. Uh, but uh, what I hear from ministers uh, is that everyone is very committed to make progress. So I hope that ministers and, and leaders at the political level can, uh, you know, impress that sense of urgency and we then uh, will be working on the more practical issues to make it happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Patricia. I know we're all working very hard and Alok Sharma, the president of the COP on the UK side, particularly to get everybody there as, uh, in, in, uh, physically, uh, if we can. But of course, we're always in the hands of the, uh, of the virus. Um, the, uh, there's one question which you raised, which I'd just like to uh, ask you to develop slightly um, before we go into the questions from our listeners, and that is around uh, finance. I mean, we were both, both you and I, very much involved in getting the 100 billion in place in uh, Copenhagen 2009, Cancun 2010. And uh, that was uh, uh, promised by 2020, which of course is just finished. Um, there is a chance, as we both know, that we can make it uh, in 2021 before before the COP, and we must all try very hard. But could you describe some of the challenges of, of that, including around that adaptation finance? Thank you, thank you, Nick. And um, you know, I, uh, I I feel a bit shy talking about finance while you are such a such an expert and you have been uh, really so critical, such a a, a critical critical guide uh, on on this issue. And uh, and let me also thank you very much for your work on climate finance, which uh, really is so important and gives light to, to so many um, delegations in our process. Well, what I would say is, um, first of all, finance is um, a very important uh, element to build trust among parties. So we know that one very important element for uh, diplomacy and for any agreement to come together is trust. People need to have trust with each other. And so, yes, indeed, uh, the fact that uh, so far we have not seen uh, the uh, goal of the 100 billion uh, come together and, and, and be delivered uh, clearly is, is uh, um, uh, an, an element that uh, leads to an erosion of trust. So we need to rebuild that. We need to make, and that's, that's like the foundation of everything. Um, uh, so we need to rebuild that. And um, 
uh, you know, uh, it has been, this is also where, where the COVID um, crisis uh, also has uh, some um, relates uh, somehow to the, to the uh, climate crisis. Um, if we look at what happened uh, last year when uh, COVID hit, the amount of resources that were immediately mobilized for uh, addressing uh, the COVID um, pandemic, uh, it was really um, incredible. Uh, $12 trillion is, is a figure that I, I have in my mind. Maybe you correct me, please, if, if, if that's uh, not uh, right. But, you know, from suddenly that was not planned and suddenly the, the world, the wealthy nations could mobilize this amount of, of money. So if you compare that to the 100 billion that have been committed since 2010, it, re it really is very difficult to uh, explain why those 100 billion have not yet come together. There is a problem, and you know much better than me about it. There is a problem about the, the counting and the methodologies that are used. But um, uh, the bottom line is we really need to be able to come forward with a credible story, with a credible uh, way of showing that the, 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 the pledge, the commitment that was made is delivered. And um, this includes, of course, not only public funds, uh, because the, the wording uh, uh, of, um, of uh, in, in uh, 2010 and then in Paris is mobilizing 100 billion. Uh, but it certainly means that we need uh, to, um, to, to really remind everyone of our um, uh, of, of, of this commitment and the fact that it is an indispensable element to rebuild trust. Um, the figure we got from the OECD report with uh, data from 2018 was 80, 80 billion. Of course, we don't have yet the data for 2020, but uh, given the emergency that the world faced in 2020, it's even also worrying. Uh, I worry whether we will uh, see an increase at all uh, because we know that a lot of uh, funding was dedicated to uh, health and to addressing the global pandemic. So we need to see that political will translated into specific actions. And on the other hand, uh, I think it's important for uh, the donor community for developed countries and societies in developed countries to understand that in doing this, in mobilizing, in complying with this um, uh, commitment, they are really serving their own purpose. If we were to have, uh, you know, the best, the best Green Deal in Europe, the best um, implementation of the UK's um, commitments, um, that's very good. But if we then see that in the developing world, things are not going right and emissions continue to rise and the transformation is not happening, all the efforts that uh, are being made will be uh, negatively affected. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I certainly think and I am very hopeful that the leaders that have come forward with uh, more ambitious plans in terms of uh, 
uh, bringing their countries towards net zero, they will also um, uh, increase their efforts in order to put the 100 billion together and more and more because we know that the transformation does not need 100 billion, it needs trillions. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Patricia. I mean, we know from the recent uh, report for the UN, which was, you know, um, one of the leaders of that, Amar Bhattacharya, you know very well, and Alina Avachenkova was from our own Grantham Institute, you also know very well, uh, was, was part of that. And it did show their recent report, a little more recent than OECD, that that 100 billion is, is, is in sight if, if there is a strong push in bilateral support, and the UK has, has committed substantially there, the, um, but particularly through the international financial institutions uh, of all kinds, development finance institutions, international financial institutions. And that will be absolutely key. And it's the rich countries who have big shares in those institutions who can push them in a good direction. And to be fair, those institutions want to go there. But it's going to be hard, uh, a hard push to get there, but that is something which is surely absolutely key. Because this is the growth story of the 21st century, the drive to net zero. It's full of opportunity and jobs, as, 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 as we know. But you've got to invest to get there. And if you want to invest, you've got to have the finance to support that uh, investment at reasonable terms, public and private. So this is absolutely crucial that um, we get the 100 billion, but also, as you emphasize, we go way, way beyond the flows we need to finance the investment. Nick, um, let me let me just make one one more comment on this on this issue, um, uh, which is um, yeah, as you rightly say, and and the report uh, that uh, you Amar and colleagues have put together is really very very valuable. It shows very clearly uh, the ways and the areas and and the institutions where we need to make uh, some changes, and. Um, uh, it's, that means that uh, the, the finance issue is not an issue that we will solve within the climate change pro process. Yeah. No. And, and, and that's also very important, right? Um, if, if, when we go to the COP, it's not the finance ministers, it's not the finance decision makers, the ones that are meeting there. So we, we really need, and, and, and this is why I so much appreciate uh, that uh, report also, we need those discussions to start taking place now in the multilateral financial institutions. Now uh, that those institutions also um, uh, put climate risks in the center of their decision-making uh, altogether as part of the, of the, of the normal, uh, to, to say it in, in some way. Very good. Now, um, we, we could talk the two of us uh, for four hours, uh, and in the past we have, but we have to try to just spend our last few minutes with the questions from the audience. And uh, they're coming in. I'm going to ask uh, three at uh, a time, and let's see if we can do two lots of three. I will try in the dozen or so minutes we have left. That Jack Palmer White, who's an LSE alum, asks about combining the climate story with uh, the uh, biodiversity story. Um, Alejandro Lomeli, not Lomeli, I'm 
you will tell me if I pronounce his name correctly because he's an LSE student from Mexico. And he asks about the role of subnational governments and how prepared they are, and cities, of course, in this story. And one of our uh, alumna, Livia Rossi, asks about the role of carbon pricing. Now, each of those three are very big questions, but if you if you could just take them sort of reasonably sort of in headline terms, and then we perhaps have one other go at getting three questions in. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for, for these uh, questions. Um, let me try to, to be brief so that we can go to another, another uh, a group of, of three questions. Uh, absolutely, the, the relationship between climate and biodiversity is, is, is um, a, I mean, it's, it's actually one agenda. It's only one agenda. It, it is not, these are not separate agendas. You cannot address uh, climate change uh, without taking into account biodiversity, or I could put it in a more positive way. If you address climate change, you will be addressing biodiversity and vice versa. Uh, the same is uh, maybe one of the most um, common examples is what we are seeing uh, what we see in the in the ocean, the ocean, the acidification of the of the ocean, the warming of the oceans is uh, provoking the loss of uh, marine um, uh, ecosystems. Um, some of the most uh, known are the corals. The IPCC report puts forward very clearly, very very bad, very very difficult, tragic scenarios. I would say. Uh, about uh, corals and corals are important not only by themselves we, we 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 like them a lot those are beautiful beautiful creatures but uh, they also host a lot of other species that are then endangered if they they do not survive we uh, work very closely together with uh, the uh, secretariat on biodiversity um, I, I am afraid that um, uh, now that when we are entering the uh, phase of implementation of the Paris Agreement, uh, we need to, to look for better ways of creating these synergies between uh, biodiversity, climate change, and also the other um, uh, big convention, which is the Convention on Desertification. And, and that's a challenge, you know, co uh, collaboration and coordination is always a challenge at the national level and at the international level. But we need to be able to make better use of the synergies that we can have uh, by working uh, together. Regarding the subnational um, authorities, absolutely crucial. If you think about um, cities, uh, 70% of emissions uh, globally are generated in cities. So frequently I say, well, um, the climate change uh, uh, battle will be won uh, in cities. You know, if you, if you were to, to, to think about, okay, how can we do it? How can we make sure that we, okay, cities is one component. So um, therefore I'm very, very, very happy to see that uh, majors have been uh, active in uh, getting together, in trying to put uh, forward uh, some plans. There is uh, 
uh, one um, um, uh, coalition of majors, which is uh, C40, cities 40. It started as 40 cities. Uh, today, I don't even know exactly the number of cities, but they are really many, many cities have uh, joined. Uh, there is also the uh, ICLE, which is also an entity that brings together uh, cities uh, uh, and also nationals, also not only cities, but um, regions, uh, whole regions in, in, in the U.S. or uh, in Mexico, for example, we have uh, uh, states that have um, a special um, competencies. Uh, that level of decision making is also very important. And it is important because the transformations uh, need to take place on the ground. I mean, at the global level, in our process, the UNFCCC process, we uh, provide an, a big uh, platform and we provide the big guidelines. But then those need to be translated into specific plans, policies and actions at all levels of government. So we are working with them. Uh, although, of course, uh, we are an organization uh, that where parties are the uh, national governments. Um, and uh, regarding carbon markets, well, carbon markets, yes, uh, we, we really, I really am hopeful that we can get a, a finally a compromise solution for uh, the negotiations under Article 6, because carbon markets uh, are a very effective uh, instrument to provide uh, finance to some of the uh, most vulnerable countries and, and the ones that have really more difficulties to access uh, different um, uh, finance uh, sources. So um, it, it is an uh, important instrument. Of course, we need to, to look at carbon markets, not as a substitution of uh, uh, reducing emissions, of lowering emissions, but as a as, as a uh, tool to complement uh, those uh, efforts in order to reach net zero by 2050 and be able to reach uh, the, by the end of the century, the 1.5 uh, goal. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Patricia. We've got very little time left, but I'm just going to ask you one more question, which is from Philip Boxall from the USA. Essentially, he's asking, is 2050 or 2060 for net zero soon enough? Well, I, I would say um, we are not, we're not yet there. I mean, if we, if we take uh, the plans, and, and now, of course, it's difficult to say because we have just received some uh, new and updated NDCs. We hope that this year we will also receive uh, some uh, uh, the rest of the of the uh, national plans. Uh, as of 31st of December, we had received 75, 75 countries had presented their NDCs. Um, and, uh, but we are 197 countries. Uh, so we were still missing uh, quite a lot. So uh, we will be producing a report uh, in about uh, a month, a month and a half, that will present the picture as of 21st, 31st of December. But then uh, we know 
many countries have announced that they will be uh, present, presenting their NDCs in the, in the coming months. I hope that they will do it as soon as possible. And uh, before the COP, we will produce an, a com complementary report that would then take account of everything that we have uh, received. But so far, what, what we are seeing is we're, we're far from the 1.5 degrees and, and, and not yet there for the 2050. But I would say that the announcements that I referred to before um, are really uh, encouraging. I, I don't want to say that uh, yet uh, because we, we don't have the calculations, but I would say that uh, they do indicate that now countries and not only countries, but also private sector and investors are moving in the right direction. I mean, um, when I came to the secretariat in this position uh, three years ago, I would never have thought that uh, today we would be seeing 2050, net zero 2050 as a goal that people would be talking about. You know, it, yeah. it seemed almost impossible. So let's stay optimistic and let's continue to think that we can do it and nothing is impossible. Thank you, Patricia. And I think we would all agree that the focus on net zero in this last uh, two or three years has transformed the debate because everybody can go for net zero. When we were talking about cutting by um, 80%, you know, 1990 to 2050, it's remarkable how many people thought they were in the 20% that didn't or didn't have to. Yeah. But now net zero is net zero, and it is remarkable how fast people are moving. And I think that momentum that we're seeing, uh, Patricia, uh, comes from a number of places, but I, I do want to recognise the importance of the UNFCCC in moving that story forward, in emphasising the importance of ambition not only, of course, for 2050, which is extremely important, but it's this decade up from now until 2030, which will be absolutely decisive for our future. And I wanted to thank you so much for your leadership in all this. Uh, we're with you, uh, arm in arm, supporting you. And um, uh, please, uh, your inspiration has just been wonderful. I know it will continue. Um, but I just wanted to leave the last word uh, to you, Patricia. We have to close in about uh, 30 seconds. But I thought last word with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. And um, my last word would be really to emphasize uh, my, my last message. Don't give up. It is possible. We can do it. We need all of you on board. So please go on. And... Uh, be optimistic. We need to look at the future with optimism. Thank you so much, Patricia. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you and uh, goodbye. Thank you all for joining us.